Hi, everybody, and thank you for joining me today on the Digibyte and Friends podcast. Here I am joined by Forrest. You probably know him as Hashoshi from YouTube. Uh, do you want to give us a quick introduction to yourself? Let us know a little bit about what it is that you do in the crypto space, aside from living the dream here when it comes to doing it full time, right? Like, right on. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely. Thanks for having me on. Um, my name is Forrest, as as Josiah said. Uh, I'm a DApp developer in uh, in industry, so I, I build a lot of applications uh, for web and mobile on different blockchains. Uh, I know I did a video a while back with Josiah about Digi Assets, so I'm really excited about that and the potential for you know maybe DApps down the line on Digibyte. I get a lot of questions about that. Um, but otherwise, I make videos on YouTube about how to develop dApps, how to get involved in the crypto space, and just generally breaking down technical concepts for everyone to be able to to get in the mix and, and learn. Awesome. Yeah, great. Thank yeah. you so much. So you've been doing this for a little while now. Yeah. What are, what are probably, I guess, what's some of the key things that you think anybody who would be interested in doing this should know? before they get started, before they jump in? Like what, what's something that you wish you could go back in time and tell yourself two or three years ago back in the past? Yeah, definitely. I think from a code perspective, I would have, I really wish that I had had more of an understanding of how like real modern enterprise style applications were built, right? So understanding the types of technologies that businesses today use. And even that's inclusive of like the Snapchats and the, big mobile app people that if you will um, understanding that would ha- would have helped me understand how to build better dapps early on from the smart contract side right um, understanding what kind of data they need how fast it's got to get there um, where an, an off-chain database is necessary and not necessary for these bigger organizations <laughs> that sort of thing because it's really cool in a test environment to make a smart contract that does all this stuff. But as soon as you try and put it on a mainnet, like Ethereum, where gas costs real money, people are not going to use it if it costs them a fortune to operate. So um, that would be the big thing for me. So how much does that cost kind of factor into things, I suppose, in terms of when you're developing something from the ground up, you've obviously got to be aware that there is going to be a cost every time you store something on chain. Is that kind of like always in the back of your head or are you, do you just basically get to like plow on through and some other company over here is going to, like how does that work out? Yeah, it's kind of a mix. I think early on in the process with anyone who wants to build a dApp, you're thinking about, all right, who are the players? Who's going to be involved in this? What are their resources like? You know, if, if it's someone who knows that they have, you know, 100,000 to a million like customers that they can count on, which is very few businesses, mind you, then their cost structure can be a lot different than someone who's trying to build something. They don't have a customer base yet. So sure. when I go to build something, though, usually it goes through two phases. And the first one is let's prove that this concept works and works for you with what you've got in terms of other technology. And then let's make that as efficient as possible, given the constraints of platforms like Ethereum, right? So make a contract that works, that matches best practices, and then let's see what the cost would be if we do a test net run and see what it would cost with pretend ether and calculate that, right? Um, And then from there, you can sort of refine, you can say, maybe we don't need this data as a string, right? As like alphanumeric, maybe we can make this data 
an integer, a number in a smart contract and recording numbers into a smart contract costs less than putting a string. Yeah. Right. So, I, yeah. so that stuff helps a lot. Is that, is that something that you kind of um, pick up as you go along or is, is have you always been very much uh, aware of this kind of optimization as you're, as you're coding? Yeah, it's, I, I would like to say that I've always been cognizant of it, but I think early on, especially, I was more focused on making it work than I was on making it efficient. And even when I build things now, when I build my first sort of smart contract that does what it's supposed to do, a lot of times it's still a little expensive to use and I have to then refine it and go in and find where we can effectively take it down a notch and where we can make compromises on on maybe what data goes in and maybe uh, what type of data goes in. Can we use a hash value instead of a, a uh, an array of strings? You know, sure. little things like that that you just pick up over time with experience and you see patterns that you've used in the past that you can use for other people and other other dApps. But know? they they all no doubt add up pretty damn quickly. Uh, yeah. In terms of cost and in terms of like does does that impede things a, a lot? Like having that cost always there to store something in a database compared to say for example if you're developing a website. No one cares if you've got an extra like paragraph worth of blurb. Yeah. Um so you can be as verbose as you like. But in terms For of sure. that, how much how much does that play into things? It, it dominates a lot of the conversations and, and what limitations you have, um, especially if it's a, a DAP that's going to be on a mainnet. Right. It's less of a problem if you have a an app that's going to be sort of something, quote unquote, for fun or something that's going to be on a private network, right? Yeah. Because there are a lot of opportunities to set up a private Ethereum network. That opens up the whole other conversation of, <laughs> you know, where is when do you have value in a private network versus when do you not? I think it's that's nuanced. There are times where having that private network can be valuable, right? But with the cost of everything being well defined, there's always documentation there for you to know where the limitations are and then communicate that stuff to whoever's going to be using it and whoever might be buying it, you know? Sure. So, so in terms of well, I guess I, why, don't, why don't we take a quick step back? What was what was the first ever DAP that you developed, and how did you actually get into it? Yeah, so let's see. When was the first time? I presume I think you didn't so. wake up one morning as like six year old little Forrest and go, "I'm gonna be a DAP developer," right? Like, no, no. What? How and, did that actually, happen? Even even during the time when I was really interested in, you know, in Bitcoin at the time, and then when Ethereum came out, I was very interested. I did not have very many technical skills. Like I had little odd jobs like fixing hardware and I enjoyed that, but I didn't have core programming skills at that time. That was in, um, you know, I guess with Bitcoin, tw like 2010, I didn't really know anything. When Ethereum came into the mix, I had started learning all that stuff. So that's when I started seeing like, hey, can I build something that works if I have a little bit of documentation there to help me? Sure. So the first thing that I did was I built a it was basically like a budgeting dApp where I would submit to the smart contract on a locally run version of Ethereum, a geth, geth implementation on my computer. In college, I would enter in all the things that I purchased, right? So I, I would go in there and you'd spin up the contract and that would be for the week. And it had like X number of dollars that I had in my account, like that I could spend. Right. 
And so I'd punch it in and then eventually the DAP would tell me, hey, you've spent your whole budget on on this. <laughs> or if I punched in an expense that was over $20, it was like, hey, take it easy, brother. Like, you yeah. gotta <laughs> No more money. McDonald's for the week, man. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> more like no beer in that case, but yeah, yeah. Um, it's college. <laughs> what can you do? Uh, but yeah, that was the first thing that I ever built and it was very rudimentary and very simple. But I learned what the general gist of using Solidity, the, the programming language for Ethereum, right. to build something would, would be like. So and that kind of kicked it off. Is that is that a good way to get started, to like make something for fun? Or do you think that people should actually dive in? Because we often see, say for example with Digibyte, we've asked this a lot and we'll say, hey look, if, you, if you're interested, then come along and join us. But I'm also very much aware that it's it's not an easy leap to dive straight into, say for example, coding up a wallet or mm-hmm. an app, as as you are, are very well aware. Um, what what would your advice be? Dive straight in or make something else for fun? So I think if you have prior programming experience and you have, you know, let's just say you're a Node.js developer and you've built a lot of stuff with JavaScript, you'll probably feel pretty at home if you're using Solidity and terms of how it's typed and what the language is like and how variables are set and all that sort of thing, right? You'll have those basic concepts down right away. But then you can spend all your time diving into the details, which is really where Solidity gets difficult. And that's how do I write it so it's secure? How do I write it so it's efficient so that it's not costing a ton for people to use it? And then finally, how can I build this so that other people are going to use it the way that I think they are. Right. <laughs> and and so like that's the other challenge too because it's public. You can't restrict people from doing any number of weird things with yeah. your contract that you didn't think about, like calling functions in a different order than you thought or yeah. passing in data that's like completely <laughs> irrelevant to your contract. That sort of thing you have to mm-hmm. handle. And yeah. th- those are the complex things. Yeah, yeah, and it's totally funny that you that you mentioned that as well because even with our wallets we find mm-hmm. things like people using them in ways and I'm just like, what made you decide to do that? Yeah. Like, why would you yeah. do that? But now now that they've told you, you're kind of like, that makes a lot of sense. Like, I can understand why somebody might want to do that. It's not how I would have done it. But kudos to you for being yeah. innovative and doing something clever with the app in that way as a user. But Totally. Um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> user testing, man. That's hilarious. Um but, but so in terms of like, you mentioned Node.js, we've actually got a lot of stuff that we're doing with uh, DigiAssets and everything is, is based around that in terms of all of the uh, the servers and the services and things like that. Would somebody who has Node.js experience be better off or would you recommend that somebody starts off learning something like Python, for example? I think it depends. Um, I think in terms of being comfortable with building something with solidity for example python is okay because you understand how data moves and all that sort of thing but that's more helpful on the api side so being able to talk to the smart contracts that you've already built right whereas javascript is very similar and so is, is c very similar to what solidity is built from um in terms of syntax and how everything works overall. So you're not exactly going to be at a disadvantage either way though. Yeah, you're not going to be at a disadvantage either way. Um, the biggest trick is if you're new and you don't have development experience, you've got to get the fundamentals of programming down first right. 
so that you can understand the decisions that are being made for your decentralized application. Sure. Well, I mean, yeah. I guess that kind of that, that brings me to a next interesting sort of question. What makes yeah. a bad dap? Like what would what would somebody come to you and say, I want to make this a dap? And you'll just turn around and go, no, like don't do it. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I also realize the light is terrible here because my window is blasting me. But that's right. um, well, it is yeah. an imposter or something. I'm, I'm, I'm not that post. good of an editor. <laughs> no worries, Matt. I'll, I'll fix it if it gets too much too much worse. But um, sign of a bad dap would be, first and foremost, putting a bunch of unnecessary data on a smart contract, right? You know, in a private environment, it makes perfect sense to try and just put extra stuff on because you yeah. can and you can, you're not paying real money, so who cares? But when you start getting into real money and sometimes money that isn't yours, where people are going to have to right. spend a fortune to use your app, not just to own it, then you're like, well, I have to now optimize. Yep. So the first thing that I see, and I did the same thing, I, I was punching in like where I bought the food from and or the purchase was from with right. this industry. I was putting in um, because I wanted to have a dollar sign in there. I was entering the numbers in as a string, like stupid, it makes no sense to do it that way yep. because you can optimize it by using numbers instead. Um, that would sure. be the first thing. And then second of all is, is taking a process that has no real value by being on a disintermediated or like a decentralized right. medium That's and trying right. to just fit that because it's cool yep. onto a blockchain because like my budget thing, like that was just because that's what I thought of and that's what I thought would be cool to build. There was no value in me doing that on Ethereum versus just setting up a little SQL database on my computer and yeah. having rules in there to say, hey, you're stupid, stop spending money. Sure. You know? <laughs> but, but it's a great way to, to learn about it, obviously. And it's also kind yeah. of funny to have your computer come back to you and tell you stop buying the, the craft beer, buy the cheap stuff. You're a student. Right on. Yeah, and you can, be, you can have fun with it. Yeah. So you know, those would be the two things. There are, are a very limited number of use cases where a blockchain is not just, it's not the solution. It may be a part of it, but it's not the solution. Sure. Like there are so many examples of it, but you know, in, in supply chain, people always talk about blockchain as this ubiquitous supply chain solution for <laughs> all their asset tracking needs, right? While it's a really great tool for that and tracking the physical assets, all the other parts of it, like the physical tracking, like how are you going to figure out if, even if you print it on that, that object, yep. the hash value that you're storing on the chain, how are you going to validate that no one jumped into that truck and smashed all the stuff yep. and then you're tracking nonsense at that point? Yep. So that's where something like IoT comes in or a um or image recognition using machine learning model to identify anomalies and what data is being fed into the chain because if you put garbage on a blockchain you're just going to have immutable garbage it yeah. doesn't mean it's any better data it's still it's terrible going to be shit forever then basically yeah. that you have to regret yeah. for all it's, of eternity yeah exactly it's just garbage data you can't delete that's it 
It's interesting so, that you mentioned that. I've, I've also looked into supply chain things. And one of the things that we, we sort of, uh, as we were going along with the supply chain was was very much just that. Like, it's great that we've gone and signed a message and stored it on the blockchain. But do you want to, you look like you want to go and fix up the window. Yeah, no, it's, I was just going to say I, it was like flat. Something was flashing out there and it <laughs> caught my attention. But it's 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 you've you've got to be very careful, obviously, with what it is you're putting into it, and at like the yeah, I suppose the like the the paths along at which it's taken. There there's more than just going. We've got our supply chain on the blockchain. Yay! Like yeah yeah. yeah. I mean, so for us, like when uh, as part of my day job, if I'm looking things up on the on a website, like if we've lost a package that we've shipped out to a customer. It's great that, that that could be on a blockchain, but that's still not going to fix the fact that the, the courier went to site, tried to deliver it, and then turned around and went back with it because he couldn't be bothered finding the front door or something along those lines. You still, it's, I, I don't think that obviously there, there's a lot of things that we can do with, with blockchain and with dApps, but at the same time, I'm also very weary, and maybe this is something that you can kind of comment on because I'm sure you've got a lot more firsthand experience. I'm very wary of people going, everything on the blockchain is the solution and we're going to rename our business to Long Island Iced Blockchain instead or whatever it is, you know? Like, Yeah, no, and that's, that's something that happens a lot. I think that there are very limited use cases that blockchain is the one, like one facet solution for everything, right? I think that there are a lot of instances where a DAP is part of the problem solution, sure. but not the whole solution, yeah. right? Because like in your example, if you've, if you've lost a package, just having a record that you lost the package at X time, <laughs> it's like, it's good that you have that, but you still have no clue why. And there's no active recourse yeah. for you to fix the problem. Yeah. But if you have other technologies that support that physical to digital world connection, mm. then you're in business a little bit because now you have, even if there's an issue with those sensors, for example, now you have an example of when the data started going bad, right? Now you have telemetry up to the point where that something went wrong and you know that it hasn't been tampered with since then, yep. especially if there are other actors involved. So in places <laughs> like, you know, uh, supply chain in, let's just see, say like South Africa, if, you're, if your goods are crossing a border, right, yep. and you know that they're crossing a border and then you lose track of them, now you know, okay, this is the exact place where we lost this stuff. This is what happened to this stuff before we lost it. Yep. And we have that tracked, right? And we know that no one's sending us a fake report via a letter or yep. piece of mail or an email that could be easily forged by someone else. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And especially that's the kind of thing that we see um, I think it's with the likes of the Belt and Road and that kind of, uh, I suppose, supply route. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting deep dive, I suppose, that we could do. We could go into just that very much um, alone. But I think what I'd like to do is, is more ask you about what... Well, why, why don't why don't I ask you before I before I go into that? What sort of uh, dApps have people come to you with where you've had to actually turn them away and go? I don't think that should be on a blockchain. Yeah, there are a handful of things that people have asked me. Um, fairly recently, 
I don't remember if it was someone that I met in school or maybe it was someone that I knew from ages ago who had reached out to me and they said, Hey, I, I'm out of a job right now and I don't like it. I want to quit and I want to build a blockchain application and can I give you my idea and, you know, see if it's good and I'm going to like quit at this on this date. Nice. And I, their idea was basically to the effect of, I want to set up a loyalty rewards program for one really small niche. And I think it was like something to the effect of soda, like syrup supply chains where restaurants that get high volumes, right? would get kicked back from these people in a token form. Okay. And I said like, cause there, there is some applicability in terms of loyalty rewards for like non-fungible tokens, right? Sure. That's cool stuff. Yeah, absolutely. This type of use case though, the first question that I ask, and now I do this for everyone that reaches out to me with an idea is, what does your token offer that you couldn't do with pocket change in US dollars or Australian dollars or whatever? Yep. <laughs> why could why could your like this company not set up a platform that says if you buy 50 cases of Coke syrup for your restaurant versus 25, we're going to give you this discount. Like salespeople have been doing that for years. Yeah. And doing it over your token really doesn't make any difference in how that relationship is settled. And and that's really where the conversation ended because there was no value prop to use a token or adapt to do it. It was actually going to lose them money doing it that way. Sure. And it's interesting because now you've, you've got uh, a token when you could simply just, like you say, discount it. What gives mm -hmm. that token value? Like why, why not? Like, why does it need to be on a blockchain? I guess is somebody external that you don't trust going to potentially try and purchase it. It's, yeah. And it's like, you can, you can always kind of twist and find like fringe reasons why it would be valuable Yeah, and fringe reasons why like, oh, well, maybe we don't want one central company to be in control of the distribution of rewards or whatever. But then again, it's not going to be valuable if everyone in this industry does not join and like agree to participate, Right, you're already dead in the water. So you have to find a way. It's a challenge. You have to find a way to create something that's cheap enough operationally to use, that's that's valuable in terms of the use case, but that you can get people to use without having to, to force them or that it's valuable enough early on if you have only a few users. Yeah. And that's not an easy balance. Yeah, so speaking of challenges, uh, one of the things obviously with Digibyte is that we are bringing out Digi assets. We've been working on uh, mobile-centric sort of ecosystem, mm -hmm. I suppose, with our applications. What sort of applications do you think that something like that would be best suited for? Like in terms of what's a dApp you could interface with from a mobile that you think would potentially have a lot of value for people? Yeah, I think Digi Assets, and it's one that we talked about before. For me personally, I would love to set up a Digi Asset for like my community on YouTube, right? To have something that's pretty easy for me to set up and to facilitate that would bring some attention to Digibyte that people could pass along as like kudos or awards for like really cool comments on a YouTube video or to, you know, 
as you accumulate these, like I can distribute them to people as they comment or they contribute something or they help someone in the comments. They're nice to people in the comments. Then they can trade that in for merchandise or whatever that I offer, you know, from, from my channel, that sort of thing, like community engagement is a really useful thing. Um, especially because the cost of ownership and, uh, cost of operation for digi assets versus me setting up my own non-fungible tokens for that. It's very, very different. Like it would cost me a fortune over time to offer the same thing on Ethereum if I wrote the DAP and I was paying for it. Sure. Because I'd have to be paying gas for every transaction that would get sent. And then my users would also have to do that. On Digibyte, the cost is is marginal. It's, it's nothing really in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. It's, so I think we were actually talking about this the other day. Um, at the moment on mobile, I think we default to 40 Satoshis per byte. And if we're looking mm-hmm. around about 400 bytes for a transaction, it starts to, e- even if price fluctuates up and down and things, it's still very mm-hmm. affordable, especially as a as an end user to make that kind of a transaction to to send it back or to, to do some kind of action with it, uh, even on a regular basis, which is quite cool. So, I mean, that's something that we're obviously very excited about. Um, in terms of setting that sort of thing up, obviously, if, if you were if you were to give advice to other other YouTubers maybe in ways that they could do that kind of community engagement with a digi asset. What sort of advice would you start them off with so that they don't jump in and get completely drowned by everything? Um, I think the first would be, you know, and this is something that I would go through if, if I were setting this all up myself. The first thing you want to do is set up the tiers for incentive. Like how many do you want to create, first of all, and then once you create them, how many of them are going to equate, like what's the value of those to you, right? Because you're obviously setting an arbitrary value um, to a certain extent. Granted, when people start using them, maybe they attribute them more value than otherwise they would because sure. it's like intrinsic. Yeah. But physically, when they're exchanging them for something physical, what's the value? Um, and then are you gonna offer physical stuff or are you gonna offer experiences uh, paywalled content or custom content based on people who own those, you know, those tokens. There's all sorts of things you can do with it, but it's really how much time and effort and cost that you're willing to accommodate to engage with your community in a, in a unique way. Hmm. Those are some really interesting ideas as well, especially as we start seeing things um, like like crypto specific projects mm-hmm. that are replacing like for example, Patreon, where you do have your, your obvious tiers and things, that sort of thing mm-hmm. could potentially give people the ability to kind of run their own, not host their own, especially seeing as you want to be paid by people. But you're yeah. now offering those rewards back and those incentives back for people as a as a token, as an asset. Mm-hmm. And then, so in terms of, I guess, like, so so changing, changing step a little bit here. Yep. If somebody were to, like, what's the, what's the best way of phrasing this? If we're using dApps on a, on a daily basis, what would you say to somebody who's more of a skeptic, I suppose, about the like blockchain technology as a whole and how it can um, be applicable? We, we mentioned, we touched briefly earlier on um, pre-camera about how a lot of uh, people call things scams, for example. What would you say more to somebody who's, not used the digital asset before? 
I would honestly say that if you've ever if you've ever experienced a situation where like concert tickets are one, right? Concert tickets are this crazy beast because people pay inordinate amounts of money to go to these shows mm. and artists <laughs> get only a portion of it because a lot of the times the money that they're spending is often other people gouging other people. Yeah. So maybe, you know, and this is obviously there's a lot that would go into this type of use case, but if you could have a lot more of a granular tracking mechanism to who buys this ticket and stopping them from physically sending that ticket to someone else and using it, right? You can do that with like a piece of paper and an ID, but then who's going to check that ID, right? That takes manpower, costs, that has cost. Yep. So maybe you can do that, form- formulate those tickets as a digital asset and link them to someone's identity, maybe using something like Digi ID that's well restricted and say only the person that can prove that they own the keys that first purchased this ticket is going to be able to do it. And that's a simple, that's a marginal check for a computer. For a person that might take some time to physically check someone's ID and make sure it's on the same ticket. <laughs> you can't stop someone from trying to sell their ticket, but you can stop someone if it's all digital. You can't even let them try. Not to mention that you're standing there like in the queue waiting, you're holding up, right. there's a line behind you building up and then maybe the security guard's flashlight stops working so he can't see your face. And Yeah, right. there's a so, whole I lot mean, of things that go yeah, ahead. And- and when what what happens now is, and this happened to a friend of mine recently, they purchased a ticket from a third party who, and I, the person that sold it to them said they didn't know that you couldn't sell the tickets. It says it on there, original buyer <laughs> only, no one else would be admitted. Yep. So yep. they both messed up, right? My friend pays an exorbitant amount of money for these tickets. And the other person obviously doesn't now have those tickets. So neither one of them get to go to this show. Yeah. And my friend's out money that he paid for these tickets. Yeah. All of this would have been prevented if there were controls in place digitally to stop them from selling them in the first place. It's like you physically cannot transfer this ticket to someone else, yeah. period. There's no physical way. And that way there's there's a lot of, of controls in place for you to say like this issue is no longer going to be as prevalent. What's you know, interesting all- as well, because as a, as a public ledger, you can go and you can view it and you can see this was the issuance, this was where it was sent to you, and right. it hasn't gone anywhere else. You are still yeah. the person who it was originally sent to. Whereas if you're, if you're trading it, you're trying to send that asset onto someone else and then onto someone else, obviously there's going to be a paper trail in which the venue themselves could, like you say, just go, no, sorry, not yeah. letting you in. Hey. And that addresses the counterfeiting problem too, because you go to any sports game, especially in the US, you have all those people walking around saying, hey, I got tickets, 20 bucks, you know, too good to be true, but people do stuff that's too good to be true all the time. And they sell those tickets to you for money and then you go to the venue and you get hassled because they're clearly counterfeit tickets, but you have no way of validating that in person, standing there with this dude in your face trying to sell you tickets. So, you know, having digital provenance of, whether or not that ticket was issued by the venue you're going to is also very valuable. So yeah. there's a lot of a lot of application there. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not just specifically uh, tickets to say for example sporting events, but also things like I've previously I think we might have mentioned in the last one like airline tickets for example as well to be able to see 
how many of those have been sold for any particular given flight sent out to individuals sure maybe yeah. they have a, a certain percentage of people who don't end up showing up for their flight but at the same time this is you can stop that that overbooking by making it public and and available on the the ledger basically yeah. For anybody to see and, and verify and validate as opposed to going i think they oversold by 10 tickets for this flight maybe it was 15 and maybe if i show up i'm going to be screwed and get bumped off a couple of days worth yeah i mean double they double book all the time because there's you know if you have someone booking a flight across the country right and then they book that flight and they pay on the phone a person could sell that same ticket in the other on the other side just due to latency because yeah. they don't get to see that that ticket was sold until they're probably off the phone with the other person they just tried to sell it to. So, <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot of there are a lot of applications where there would be some value, but the value is obviously complemented by other pieces of technology, including traditional technology that we use all the time. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So, in terms of, I suppose, going going back a little bit towards development, we. With Digibyte, we've been working on DigiAssets, and one of the one of the things that we're aware of right now that is lacking is a strong set of documentation for complete newbies to to get involved. Yeah. So we have some mm -hmm. documentation that will help people. There is a certain amount of presumption that people know what it is that they are doing, roughly. But in terms of somebody really getting started, what sort of things would would they or, or would you expect that they would expect to see and and what sort of things would you what sort of advice would you give to digibyte like as a whole that we can do to help that kind of thing yeah i think for me personally i love to see documentation and code examples but it only goes so far if someone doesn't understand why a certain decision was made you know what I'm saying? Because there's all, always right. multiple ways to solve the same problem. And so you're always going to have that bias of the person who wrote the documentation, like this is the way I would do it. Right. Whereas if you have these things in like webinar formats where it's live and you have real developers asking questions like, why would you do it that way? Is this more efficient than this would be? Or you have people asking, can I use this tool that I use on Visual Studio with your SDK, stuff like that. You don't get that in static documentation because you're always relying on a couple people to build it. Yep. But on live webinars, you can obviously then create evergreen content that's out there with real developers asking questions that they would also want to know that I'm sure a lot of people watching probably thinking, well, I have that same question. Thankfully, there's an answer. Nice. And in terms of, I guess, one more thing in, uh, about about DApps in general. Speaking of it being difficult, what is the hardest part about being a DApp developer for you? Uh, communicating the value of a DApp, and because right. because of that, it gets difficult sometimes to put yourself in a position to to sell it, right? Because I always say that a good DAP is never going to feel different to the end user than another traditional app. Because if the user is sitting there like, wow, this feels really uh, futuristic and complicated, then your app developers really screwed up because they're like, what, what is taking so long? Why does this app look ugly? 
why do I know, like, why do I know this is a blockchain and it's new and like not well thought out? Like that, sure. that's the problem. <laughs> so it's always compromising. You know, I had someone say to me like, so is there like, when is it hitting the blockchain? I'm like, that's a good question for you to be asking because that means this is fast enough and it's responsive enough that you don't know nice. that there's something going on back there. So you take a humble bow at that point. You're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <sighs> right. But then they're sitting there thinking like, I'm stoked, but they're pissed because they don't understand. Like, so why is this different than what I'm already doing? Like, right. why is this? Because right. there's no there's no communication from what's going on in the background to the app front end because there shouldn't be, but then people have a difficult time understanding, okay, so where's the blockchain come into this whole thing? Like when's the blockchain being involved and when is it not? Um, Did it work? You know, like they're they're asking like, did it work? I'm like, yes, you'll see that it worked, but that's the challenging part. It's balancing user experience with accurately communicating that something different and cool is happening behind the scenes. That's really hard. Nice, nice. All right. Hey, look, well, I think we should wrap this up. This has actually been really quite uh, informational for me as well. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if 100%. people want to reach out to you and say hi and follow you on YouTube, etc., Twitter, where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Hashoshi4. That's H-A-S-H-O-S-H-I and then the number four. And you can also find me on YouTube by the same name. If you type in Hashoshi, you'll find me. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the Digibyte and Friends podcast, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really appreciated some of the insights that you've been able to offer there as somebody who lives and breathes this. Um, and it's even some, some really juicy stuff for us to think about, I suppose, as a Digibyte community as well, uh, about some of the things that would be ideal to be built on top of Digi assets and the likes. So a huge thank you to you for, for coming on and, and sharing your time with us here. Really appreciate it, man. Likewise, man. Thanks for having me and uh, best of luck with, with the builds. I'm, I'm stoked to use more stuff from Digibyte. Nice. We'll keep in touch with you. Thanks, man. Take care. Definitely, man. Cheers.